Hey, welcome to Friday Night School. I pretty much gave up doing these into the mic and mixer. I just do them to my phone all the time, even though I hate the way it makes my voice sound. There's something about the compression on my phone mic that just makes me hate the way I sound. And the thing is, too, like depending on what you're talking into, you talk different, you think different. Just doing this right now, I, I, I immediately sense a difference in myself. But anyway, enough meta talk. I was thinking about movies. Movies. And how, you know, growing up, there was this huge push for, like, behind the... I feel like my childhood was the start of this behind-the-music attitude about everything. They were always giving you the inner workings, showing you how it's made. And I'm sure there was always some of that. Like, I've seen some of these old Disney documentaries where... Disney Studios, Walt Disney Productions produced these documentaries that showed you how they do their animation and stuff. You know, so I know there's always been stuff like this. But I do remember from my childhood, you were constantly being exposed to like how movies are made, how this is done, how the special effects are done, behind the magic, and then behind the music for bands and stuff. But I never really thought about how that might have influenced entertainment and how we see things. And that stuff's gotten really uninteresting, too, when you think about it. I find it really uninteresting to think about how they might make movies today. When you do see it, you're just, you're immediately put off. All the green screen stuff. There was a documentary we watched in school, actually, and this, this is just proves my point that even in school we watched this documentary one day I think it was a fun day it was probably the last day before Christmas break or one of those where they're not going to teach you anything so they just like show you videos and things but this must have been 1997 because they showed us this documentary about how they made the digital graphics in one of the Star Wars special edition movies those had just come out or they were about to come out And they were a big deal because not only was Star Wars being shown in the theater for the first time in a long time, but they they also had all these all this new footage and effects, all this new footage and effects, and uh, a lot of that was digital. You know, Lucas Arts was on the forefront as far as inserting digital images into their movies, even old ones. And I was excited at the time; like I, I saw those in the theater. I think I only saw them one once each. And I was really excited because it meant like new characters, new new things to notice. Because I'd seen the original movies so many times that it was like, oh, look, they added that. Oh, look, that's new. It was like almost like an image, one of those images in old magazines where it's like, find all the hidden objects, find all the hidden images. That's kind of how it was watching these special editions. That said, the the actual new digital animations and things like that the new cgi stuff it really didn't look good it made everything look worse it stood out like a sore thumb at the time though i didn't care like i was just excited that a new star that star wars was out and there were new things in it but it didn't age well that's once i lost excitement it's like oh that was a horrible decision to amend your universally loved movies why would you change what was universally loved as it is? But uh, just a little Star Wars talk here. Got to get my, got to meet my quota. 
got to reference Star Wars a certain number of times every month. It's inevitable. You just inevitably do it. But uh, with uh, what I was saying is we were watching this documentary, though, about how they made the CGI in that Star Wars special edition. And the fact that we were watching that in school, we also would go to the music class sometimes. And if it was another one of those days where they're like, we're just going to show them a video. They even had these like educational videos about movies. There were even these totally boring vanilla education videos that gave you the basics on how movies were made. They were always really wholesome and cheesy. They would show us those. And it was cool. Like, I'm not complaining. I think it was really cool that we got to see the mechanics of that stuff. But having spent an entire childhood hearing about that, like, I wonder what it was like to grow up in a time where you weren't getting that view into everything. There was less TV. There were, le- there were fewer movies to begin with. You wouldn't just be watching TV and, oh, there's going to be a documentary on how they make special effects, how they make horror movie costumes. You know, you wouldn't have just come across that anywhere and everywhere. So I wonder how people felt in the 50s, 60s, 70s, just earlier generations where you didn't know how everything was made. Things must have seemed truly magical. They must have seemed very immersive. Because even though we look back at, let's say, like The Wolfman or special effects or anything from the past from those early movies they they seemed silly by the time i was a kid in the late 80s early 90s you looked back on movies from the 50s and you were like oh how did anybody ever get into that how did any, anybody ever take that seriously how did somebody watch that horror movie and actually consider that monster threatening how did they ever think that special effect was real well, they knew less about how that stuff was done. The whole experience was relatively new. And not only that, but I think about things that we took seriously when I was growing up. And that includes adults, like the things that everybody, the general public took seriously in movies. Some of them were actually really poorly done and really cheesy. You look back at a lot of the special effects from when I was a kid. It's not like all of it was that well done, but something about the experience captured you. If you cared about the movie, it didn't really seem to matter that this or that was obvious. It didn't really break immersion. Because I've rewatched old movies that I grew up with. I saw the Spawn movie, of all things. About five or six years ago, my girlfriend at the time and I watched the, the Spawn movie, which I hadn't seen since it came out. I saw that in the theater. It must have come out in 1997, I'm guessing, but there was a Spawn movie. And again, at the time, I wasn't judging it based on how good of a movie it was. I was just excited that there was a Spawn movie. But rewatching it in 2016 or 2017, I was just like, oh, this looks really bad. You know, some of these effects and everything, they look really bad. They're blatant. I think they had some early CGI or just some weird filters or something to try to get certain effects. And rewatching it as an adult, I was just like, yeah, this, this looks terrible. But I don't remember having that reaction as a kid. Even though I was pretty observant and I would have noticed something if it's fake or blatantly obvious, when I would watch a movie like Spawn, it wasn't like, oh my God, like that, I, I love this, but it looks stupid. I was just into it. And I took the story seriously. And so I think that kind of, I think storytelling of any kind 
it puts a spell over people where like they don't want to if they like the story if they're sucked into the story they're willing to suspend reality and not even willing i think they just do it i think people just naturally suspend reality when they're immersed in a story because like i said there were things that i saw in movies even as an adult even as a young adult watching a movie and getting immersed in it there are things that weren't realistic or i could tell it wasn't real or i could tell what the 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 process was but when you're into a story it's like you don't even do that because, I mean, just think about a fight scene or anything like that. You know, growing up watching as many action movies as I did, these fight scenes don't look anything like a real fight. And I'm not even just talking about the aerobic, high-flying, crazy stuff. I'm just even, even talking about the way they depict guys punching and kicking each other. The way they depict a street fight. It's nothing like a real fight. And we all know that. I mean, pro wrestling, you can see that. Where even though most people know that it's theatric, most people know that the outcome is predetermined and what they're doing is more like a dance, a violent dance, a violent dance. Even though people know that, there is still something that you as a wrestling fan, I don't know, there's still a spell that's put over you as a wrestling fan when you're into that. Like I think about when I was really into wrestling in the the peak years of WWF and I knew it was fake. I'd known that since I was a kid. I understood I wasn't watching a real competition. I understood that it was rehearsed to some degree. I understood it was predetermined. I understood these characters the guys were playing weren't real. But when I watched it, I still took it seriously. I still got sucked into the drama. Like the spell still worked for me. Still worked on me. And I think it's because you want that to happen. And people even do this with nonfiction. You know, you see the way people follow true crime. If you really look at what these obsessives say about true crime when they're following a case, they get sucked into the drama of it. That's what's going on with online true crime communities now. Even though this is reality, these people aren't perceiving it that way. It's like the spell of fiction has been put on these real events and people start to see them that way. And I think these people tend to see themselves as a participant, too, because they're allowed to talk about it. They're allowed to engage in it. And with movies, you're not a participant. But it's like you want it. There's something in you that wants it to make sense. Even if you see something that's blatantly fake, you're willing to ignore it for so that you get more out of the drama, I guess. But usually as a movie ages, you kind of see it for what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, with, with any kind of fiction, though, I think that the, we, we're almost willing to put faith in it. And it can happen with, you know, it could happen with stick figures if that's all you know. You know, I mean, you can see it happen with comics. You can see it happen with web comics even. You know, it doesn't take much. As soon as the story sucks someone in and casts a spell over them, they, they're very forgiving. And they almost take it seriously. And they talk about it like it's real. I mean, if you, if you watch people talk about movies, I mean, they take the characters very seriously. If it's a TV show where it, it, it's even longer term and you see more of the characters' lives, 
you'll see people talking about it, and they're like, I just hate Brian. Oh, my God. Did you see what Brian did on the show last night? Like, they know it's a show. They know it's fake. But they also really do hate that character named Brian. They mean it. They know that's an actor. But we can see where people have trouble sometimes separating the actor from the uh, the character. There's some people who become so iconic and they become so heavily associated with a certain character that people don't really make a distinction. That happened to James Gandolfini from The Sopranos, where uh, people would come up to him at the airport and they would treat him like he was Tony Soprano. My mom went to a restaurant in Boston, this little Italian restaurant with her friends, and they, they went in and they had framed photos of the Sopranos cast on the wall. And my mom said something to the owner about it. And he was like, he's been here. You know, uh, Tony Soprano's been here. And James Gandolfini had been there. And I guess while he was there, people were coming up to him and, and treating him like he was Tony. I think I might have a tendency to do that. You know, if I had met him before he died, uh, I'd probably, a, a little part of me would probably see him as Tony, even if I, even though I knew better. So, I mean, we want to do this even with the actors. Like, we think the actors are the person. Like, if somebody were to meet David Duchovny, could you really completely separate him from Mulder? I don't think I'd be able to. I think most of these insane X-Files nuts would not be able to do it at all. I think they would just treat him like he was Mulder. Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker... I don't think anybody could really meet Mark Hamill and not at least see a part of who you were talking to as Luke. I think it's just what you do. We like to think of them as real, and we react to them as if they are. We form opinions about them. I mean, it's funny watching a movie with a woman, and I've only known women to do this, but like they react very strongly to a bad guy. And they'll say things like, why is he doing that? What's he doing? Like when a bad guy does something bad, I've noticed that women tend to react, you know, on this visceral level. And they want to know why he's doing it. Why is he doing that? And I guess I, you know, I don't really react to bad guys that way. For me, it's like, oh, yeah, he's bad. I go into every movie being like, I know they're, I don't think this out to myself, but it's just built into me where like when I watch a movie, I'm looking for the antagonist, depending on what type of movie it is. Like if it's a movie where you know there's going to be a bad guy pretty early on in the movie, I'm like, okay, okay, that's the bad guy. Oh, the guy who just killed a homeless guy. He's the bad guy. Oh, the guy who, who was just seen like accepting some payoff, like the guy who was just seen accepting, you know, a briefcase full of money. Oh, he's probably the bad guy. And then when he does something bad, I'm like, okay, yeah, he's the bad guy. But it's, it's funny, like having watched movies with women, because way more often than men, they're like, why is he doing that? Why do you do that? Yeah, like it grips them. And that's how you know someone's invested in a movie, though. You know, the second it grips them. But we react, I mean, everybody reacts that way. Everybody reacts to characters that way. You form an opinion about them. 
you you react emotionally to these characters and what happens and i mean just that's the movie as a whole you're i mean just the idea of it always blows my mind where like you for two hours you sit down and you and you're just like i'm willing to get stressed out and be concerned and feel all kinds of emotional ups and downs on behalf of characters that i'm going to forget about in an hour you know, I'm about to get really emotionally invested and, and stressed out about events taking place in a fictional universe. And depending on how severe of a movie it, it is, it could affect me out the rest of the night. If it's a really sad, heartbreaking, tragic movie or really scary. I mean, it's always funny to me, the idea of like, I don't think this has ever really happened to me. But where you see a movie and it gives you nightmares, that was, I mean, that's what people have always said about scary movies. It's why they tell little kids, oh, you can't watch that, it'll give you nightmares. You can't watch that, it'll give you nightmares. That was always the, what, what adults said. Growing up, that was always what they said is, uh, you can't watch that or it'll give you nightmares. You were constantly being safeguarded from stuff because it would give you nightmares. I'm sure kids got, get a lot of nightmares from stuff they see on TV and in movies. I don't know that I ever did, though. There were some movies my mom wouldn't let me watch, but I watched some pretty scary movies. Some stress films. I've talked about that on here before, how they need a section in the, in the video store that just says stress films. Oh, yeah, this is a stress film. This is one of those movies that gets you really stressed out, but that would be a lot of them. That would be most of them. Most movies have something that's stressful one way or another, and we're hungry for it. We want to experience vicarious stress for two hours. But again, like you, you suspend reality. You suspend disbelief. Because everybody knows when they go to a movie, I'm going to a movie. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be stressed about. These characters aren't real. I can just find it interesting or entertaining. I don't have to worry. I don't have to get stressed out. But inevitably, if you care about it, you do. Inevitably, if you get sucked into a movie, you're just like, oh, fuck. Oh, some, something bad is happening to the good guy. Something bad is happening to the good guy. The good guy. And you're worried for him. You're like, oh my god, something's going to happen to the good guy. But uh, nothing does. And in the rare occasion that it does happen, it's like you, you kind of know that from the tone of the movie. Like your classic hero-villain story, the knight in shiming, sh shiming. The knight in shiming armor. Uh in that kind of movie, it's it's very unlikely that the good guy is just going to die halfway through the movie. Yeah, you know, newer stories, they like to throw that in sometimes, but it's still unlikely to happen. And if it does, it's going to make sense. There's going to be some kind of resolution. It will be bittersweet. But you're willing to get worried on behalf of this guy that you know is probably going to make it out okay. Like when you're watching the movie and he, he's tied down next to a stick of dynamite, you know he's probably not just going to get blown up and that's the end of the movie. But there's still a part of you that's like, oh man, yeah, you know, time is ticking down. This feels just like a bad stand-up comedy routine. But still, you're sitting there and you're like, you know, you know, he, he doesn't have much time left. This guy's in trouble. 
the bad guy's, you know, his dynamite's about to go off. But that's it. You're, you're willing to suspend reality. You still care. And we're willing to do that to an extreme extent. If all you have, if all you have available are stick figures, you'll make do with them. It's why people could watch the Wolfman, the original Wolfman, and not be like, oh, that looks hokey. I'm sure there were some people who thought that because there always are. But I'm sure there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, you know, there is a scary creature chasing after those people. There is a scary creature causing trouble. There is a scary creature causing trouble. I mean, I remember I remember watching some old movies. And I thought the special effects were impressive. Like one of them was, I don't know if it was Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. It was some telling of Aladdin, I think. It might have just been called Aladdin. I don't know. Aladdin and the Forty... I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But I think it was an Aladdin movie from... I mean, it was the silent film days. It was black and white and silent. What's black and white and silent and red all over? But, uh... And uh, there was a, a trick where, like, a guy makes a rope stand up straight in the air without hanging on anything. And it really impressed me how they did it. You know, they obviously had some easy way of doing it, but and they, they used, like, stop motion. But it was really simple, and, I mean, it, it didn't look great. But if I was watching a movie at, in that era, if I was watching a silent film when those were the, the new thing, and I saw this rope trick on screen... I think I would suspend reality for it. You know, I think we're, we're willing to do that. We're willing to negotiate with reality when we want to be interested or entertained by something. I mean, we do it with people. Like, we see things, this is going deep all of a sudden, but we do that with people. I mean, if you meet somebody and you're hungry for love... You can see all kinds of things that are incompatible between you. There's things you're not attracted to. There are red flags. There's warning signs. But you'll suspend reality because you want to get pulled into this story with them. You know, we do it with people. We do it in many different situations. Situations. You know, we do it in all kinds of places. And when you actually think about it, I mean, this, this sounds like a 14-year-old stoner thought, but we do a lot of suspension of reality. It's what we call doing a little suspension of reality. And right now, we're just in that. We're just completely in it. To be a functioning human being right now, and by functioning, I mean like someone who just interacts with people, who lives out, you know, just is out there in the world. And, and maybe this isn't new, but I, we're just seeing a new shade of it. But it's like you have, to, you have to operate in a state of suspended reality all the time and accommodate other people's suspension of reality. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I, I took Batty for a walk at the college today. I don't normally go on weekdays because it's only free parking on the weekends. But I took Batty there today. We're, we're having this really nice weather. It was like 78 today. I mean, that's unheard of in October in Washington. It's like 78 today. I think it's going to be warm tomorrow and the next day. So it's nice to enjoy that when you know it's going to be the end of it. You know you're getting that last little streak of warm weather. But I, I went to the college, and so I saw a lot more students. And it's just really interesting. I mean, 
I'm just going to bring up the topic nobody shuts up about anymore, but just the sheer number of trans students at Evergreen now, because it's always been welcoming of that, that sort of thing. Like when I went there and, you know, I went there between 2004, 2008, around 2007, I had a professor who was trans. It was, they looked like Garth. It was like, if you stretched out an elongated Garth, made Garth from Wayne's world really tall and thin, you'd have my, my trans professor. Nobody cared. Like, it was a little shocking the first day of class. Like, when your teacher comes in and, you know, on one hand, they look like, a, like an elongated Garth, which sounds like a fantasy character. The elongated Garth. Some sort of fantasy beast. But, you know, you, when your professor walks in and they look like an elongated Garth, dressed like a modest librarian lady it's just your brain kind of has to reconcile that your brain has to go oh okay and you could tell the entire class kind of had to do that Uh, but nobody cared it was just like okay this is our professor you were just there was an initial recalibration and Evergreen was a sort of environment where you didn't see that often, but you did see it on occasion, and nobody seemed to care. Like, I first remember, I knew these lesbians through my girlfriend at the time, and they had a group of friends, and they were all gay. And uh, there were a few girls in that group who, like, would call themselves boys. and I, And they just looked like lesbians and seemed like lesbians to me. I was never told specifically what they were were referring to themselves. I I was never told if they were identifying as boys or if that was just like kind of like how gay men will call each other girl or bitch. Like my old neighbor who was, you know, an effeminate middle-aged gay man, you know, he would always call his friends like girl. Like he would talk like a bitchy girl and be like, oh, you know, you're going to wear that girl. You know, it was, it was like, whatever, you know, it was just something these gay men did. So I, I never understood if these lesbians were doing that, if they were just kind of calling each other boy as a joke. But then they may have, that may have been an early sign of this, but it was just, you didn't see it, you didn't come across it. But now just going to campus, I'm just like, oh, there, 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 there. There's some you can't tell. They're probably of that mind if, if they're not doing it themselves. But it is just something that, that happens now. You just go to the campus and, you know, and the the increase in it is, is interesting because, you know, one of the arguments is that like, oh, there's there's more people doing that because acceptance is at an all time high. And you, know, you think about an environment like Evergreen where that was already accepted when I was going there. And there was very little of it. This town has been way more accepting of it than probably most places on planet Earth. But we've still seen an explosion in it. And I'm only bringing it up because I'm going to eventually talk about fashion here. But I I was at Evergreen and I was just like, oh yeah, there's a lot of trans people here. The new freshman class, the the new wave of students, October 2022, a, a lot of trans kids here. A lot of people who are into that. And then I went to Trader Joe's where I don't go very often. And it was the same thing. You know, I went in, and this isn't an exaggeration. There were probably five or six people who were like that. Just in one Trader Joe's outing today, there was at least one employee, and then there were a number of trans people shopping there. 
and two of them were dressed as twins. They looked like they were probably teenage girls, older teenage girls who were identifying as male or identifying as nothing. And they were wearing these matching overalls and they, they weren't like denim work overalls. It was like one of, one of them was wearing, it was like an olive green or brown pair of overalls. And I think they were kind of like capri length on the legs. And the other one was wearing the same thing with maroon. So they're in these, you know, these artsy kind of colored overalls, short hair. They looked almost identical. They weren't twins, but they were dressed the same way. And you could tell they were into all this stuff that I'm talking about here. And I was just thinking of that fashion. And I was like, oh, yeah, there, there is a big thing with trans women who are, you know, identifying as men where they dress like newsboys. They dress like they're trying to be the, the newsboy in Cirque du Soleil. Or I think he's a mime or something. I saw Cirque du Soleil when I was a teenager. My sister took me. Not, you know, it was impressive. It was really impressive what they do and what they're capable of. But I don't like French stuff and, and just that whole aesthetic and tone I'm just not into. And the whole, like the main character when I saw Cirque du Soleil was like this mime newsboy. He was in like those little boy overalls that are like shorts, but they're really baggy. And a newsboy cap, but he was a mime. And he did all these exaggerated movements. Like he was a little like twink looking guy. You know, he was like that build. And I see a lot of trans males, as they're called, who kind of seem to be mirroring that aesthetic. And it got me thinking about the tie. Because I was talking about how, for whatever reason, lesbians and these young people who want to identify as men, like, they're really into the, like, wearing a tie as a joke sort of thing. Kind of an ironic tie. They have short hair and a tie. I've noticed that look a lot. It's very popular. And it kind of plays into the newsboy look. There's also this this newsboy look that some of them have. And I don't know what it is, but they, they identify very heavily with, you know, older depictions of adolescent boys. The sort of garb that... It, it's like you could almost imagine them in like a little boy's sailor outfit. You know, and I'm saying this just from a purely observational place. Like, this sounds like I'm being mean or critical. I'm just observing the fashion. You know, I was talking the other day about how many of them also have this kind of late 90s, early 2000s pop punk sort of look. I'm just observing the, what I see. And some of them are wiggers. Some of them are wiggers, which is... I've seen more lesbians who are like that. I've seen a lot of lesbian wiggers in my day. But they sometimes take on that sort of look. So it's like these these kind of adolescent boy fashions, these kind of caricatures of what bo- you know past generations of young boys were doing. I'm curious if anybody's put any thought into this because I notice it again and again. I don't I don't seem to notice many that just look like an average dude. You do see them, but I don't see as many who are just kind of dressed like an average dude looks. They often have this very stylized, caricatured look. And some of them, are like the ones who are just kind of chubby, you know, they, they don't tend to do this as much. But there's a certain type of... There's a certain type of uh, trans male who 
I don't know, goes for this really stylized, old-timey little boy sort of look. Adolescent boy, teenage boy, puberty age. And I even knew somebody who, she, uh, she became a lesbian, then she became trans very quickly, in quick succession. And she'd been dating guys up until that point. She'd been dating men, and then she became a les- she came out as a lesbian, and then within months she came out as trans. And then she changed her name to the name of a, a very famous children's storybook character. A very well-known, distinctive name from a children's book that everybody knows. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to identify this person, but it's, it's a very famous children's book character who's a, a little boy. She changed her name to that. And I'm like, there is something to this. There is something to this identifying as a little boy, identifying as an adolescent, identifying as a teenage boy. This might just be one element, but I I tend to see it in a lot of places. Like even my next door neighbor who was trans up until last year, or lit was my neighbor up until last year, probably still trans, but my neighbor up until last year was trans and uh, this person had that little boy kind of look too, now that I think about it. And for whatever reason, the tie thing comes into this. And today I actually saw, I feel like I created it. I feel like I manifested this. But I, sure enough, I saw a guy wearing a tie who didn't belong in a tie. You know, I was talking about it the other day as this sort of pop punk thing. Like a guy a guy who's into pop punk or in a pop, 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 punk, who's in a pop punk band would just wear a tie with a t-shirt. Avril Lavigne, I was saying, you know, she would wear a wife beater tank top with just a loose tie around her neck. For some reason, people really liked that look. For some reason, there was this whole period where people were really into the tie with a t-shirt, a tie with a tank top. But I saw a guy walking today and, you know, he took it to an extreme. He was kind of a wigger, black hat turned to the side, a short sleeve button up black shirt. It looked like it could have been one of those dragon shirts for all I know. Looked like It looked like the same type of shirt that would have flames or a dragon. I don't think it had either of those, but it was that type of shirt. He had one of those on, but he had it completely unbuttoned down the front and just totally open. His, his bare chest completely exposed. So he had his shirt completely undone with his entire chest, the flesh exposed, but he had a tie on. And it was loosely put together like that. It wasn't like tight up against his neck. It was it was the same way Avril Lavigne wore it, the same way these pop punk guys like they just put a, a neck a tie around their neck and then kind of like let it get undone. He had that on just against his bare fucking flesh. Like that guy's walking around on a warm day with the feeling of a tie just going against his chest, with his shirt unbuttoned, and then he was in baggy jeans you know, sagging, like really baggy jeans sag down. So a wigger with a tie. But it plays into something I said a while back. You'd have to go back to one of the many episodes of wigger analysis, and I think I do I do it better than anybody. I do better wigger analysis than anybody. The only person I, I might, now I would definitely include him in that. I think I share the top of that category with Miles, my, my friend Miles. I would put his wigger analysis right up there with me. Sometimes he outdoes even me. But there's very few of us who do true, authentic wigger analysis. 
And as I said on one of those episodes, there's a strong correlation between Wiggers and pop punk. And we even saw crossover between that because both those things got very popular in affluent suburbs. A lot of teenage boys hit a fork in the road where they're like, I can either be a Wigger or I can be pop punk. And so, you know, there's a lot of boys who made that choice at some point. And some of them tried to combine it. You know, Travis Barker, you know, he's the most famous example. The drummer for Blink-182. He completely combined, like, he completely tried to be, like, a pop-punk wigger. That was his entire aesthetic. I don't know what he sounds like. I don't know what he talks like. But as far as the way he looked, he was just a pop-punk wigger. So it's not surprising that I would see this guy walking down the street with the necktie. But he was, other than that, dressed like a borderline transient wigger. It all makes sense to me. But I'm not done with the tie thing. Because it got me thinking about this guy I worked with some years back. He was like one of these bisexual polyamorous tool fans. He was one of those guys who like didn't have anything interesting enough about him. He didn't have any, like he, he wasn't into anything that was truly cool. He was like just at the edge of being hip. Like he was really into Portland. He was always going to Portland and talking about Portland. So he liked like the, the keep Portland weird sort of vibe. But he wasn't actually into anything. Like he wasn't into any kind of independent music. He didn't really know about anything. He was like just a guy who was into generic stuff. Who liked the idea of like weird Portland. I'm really, I'm a very judgmental person, as you can tell, but he was one of those types of guys, and he was bisexual, polyamorous, and he played music and stuff, but he was really into Tool, and Tool's bisexual music. Tool is music that was made for bisexual men. It just has that vibe. I I don't even, it's, it's not even a criticism of Tool. I don't even, I always forget what Tool even sounds like. I can't even, I can't criticize them. I know I brought them up recently. I don't have any thoughts one way or another about Tool, but what I do know is it's music for bisexual men. And so this guy that I worked with, like, he he was also the kind of guy, like, the office was casual dress wear. People wore t-shirts and jeans every day to work. About once or twice a week, he would come to work in, like, all black a fancy button-up black dress shirt with like a black vest over it, like a formal black vest with a red tie. So he's in all black. He's in this like formal get-up, all black, and then he'd wear a red tie with it. So you can already imagine what we're dealing with here. It was like I remember like like thinking like, oh, is he is he trying to be like the devil? Is he trying to be like the cool, slick? corporate devil like the plutocrat devil character you know when movies want to depict a guy as the devil but don't want to make him an actual demon they'll just have him wear a red tie a black suit with a red tie it's just a a poor aesthetic like even if we were all even even if it was a, a fancy office like even if the office required us to wear nice clothes which it didn't and nobody did it would still be a bit much but the fact that he would be the only guy dressed up at work and he'd be in this fancy all-black get-up with a red tie. 
but he was still kind of going for that same vibe I'm talking about. Because you'll see that with some of these people. You'll, you'll see it with the pop punk guys. I think I'm suddenly getting an image of Billy Joel or uh, Billy Joe from Green Day. I'm pretty sure he was one of these guys where he would wear a black shirt, a black button-up dress shirt with a tie, maybe even a red tie. Because like I'm saying, for whatever reason, pop punk guys love that aesthetic, like wearing a black dress shirt with a, a colored tie. It's like they're the same guys who are rebelling against corporate America. They're, they're rebelling against the idea of the plutocrat, the businessman. So it's sort of an ironic statement to them, but then it became just a full-on aesthetic. It became just part of this aesthetic those types of guys have. And that included this guy at work because he thought he was very subversive. You know, he, he's, a, he's a polyamorous, bisexual He's into tool. He's going to wear a red tie with an all-black outfit. It's just a type of person. But you could tell him wearing the suit kind of had that vibe. It's like, oh, I bet you didn't expect me to wear a suit, but it's going to have kind of an edge to it. It's like a devil suit. It's like a devil suit. Oh, my God, he wore the devil suit. Oh, my God. I should have acted really upset. Are you trying to be the devil? Are you trying to be the devil? Do you think you're the devil or something? I mean, to me, that's not even far off from kids who would try to look like a Matrix character. You know, when kids wore black trench coats to school post-1999, they were either doing it to, like, identify with the Columbine shooters, to identify as some sort of outcast or rebel... Or they legitimately thought that whole Matrix look was cool. There were kids who had come to school with a black trench coat and sunglasses. And like in their mind, they were Neo from the Matrix. And they'd always be the most awkward, uncharismatic kid. And uh, that's what this guy with his red tie reminded me of. Like, whenever someone tries to look like a cool, character, a cool, slick, badass, badass from a 90s movie, like a mid to late 90s movie, because they got really into that sort of look. Like, you could imagine some sort of badass in a late 90s movie wearing a red tie with a black suit and kids being like, oh, he's a badass because they got some big actor to play him because cool stuff happens in the movie. It's like with The Matrix. Like, yeah, that's a good look for a character in a movie like The Matrix. I mean, Shadowrun already did that. Shadowrun already had the main character in a trench coat with sunglasses. You know, Cyberpunk had already been doing that. But it fit. You know, it fits with sci- it fits with Cyberpunk. It fits with sci-fi to have a guy with a trench coat and sunglasses. Keanu Reeves pulled it off. The Matrix is still a little too shiny for me. I like sci-fi and cyberpunk and things like that to have a little bit of grit. Like what I like about the Shadowrun universe is like you're just imagining exposed wires. You're imagining things you don't know the purpose of. There's junk, there's dust, there's dirt. I like that sort of aesthetic more for sci-fi. But that said, you know, given it's a little too shiny, it's, it's a little too 1999 for me. The look they had was good for that character. 
You can't really imagine that character looking any different. But then there's the sort of person who sees that and it's like, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the guy who wears sunglasses and trench coats. I'm going to be the guy who wears a red tie and a black outfit. But yeah, people thought that like, you know, wearing a tie made you subversive. You're going against the grain. You're you're doing a little a little different. And yeah, I'm pretty sure Billy Joel, Billy Joe, that's something people used to do back in the day. Is always confuse Billy Joel with Billy Joe. I don't think about him enough because he kind of looks like a Joel. That's what confuses me about Billy Joe. That's what confuses me about Billy Joe. Is he looks like a Joel. The singer at Green Day looks like a Joel. Like, if you were introduced to that guy and you didn't know who he was and you were like, oh, this is my friend Joel, you wouldn't be surprised. Nothing wrong with it. He just looks like a Joel. Billy Joe looks like a Joel, which makes it even easier to confuse him with Billy Joel. Whereas Billy Joel kind of looks like a Joe. You think I'm joking, but it's true. He kind of looks like a guy you'd meet named Joe. If somebody introduced you to Billy Joel, didn't know who he was, same scenario as the, the other one, they were like, this is my friend Joe. He'd, you'd say, sure. He looks like a Joe. Every once in a while you, you meet somebody and they, they don't look like their name. But, uh, you know, n- nothing would change. Nobody would perceive Billy Joe any different if his name had been Joel this entire time. That was probably part of their American idiot get up. It's probably part of the American idiot phase when they wore ties. The sleeves rolled up. You know, because that was a that was a period there where like making fun of corporate America, parodying corporate America was very popular. It was considered funny. Oh, they're making fun of businessmen. They're making fun of businessmen. <laughs> that's how simple it was, though. I mean, that's how simple it was to be a rebel at that time. You could just be anti-corporate, vaguely anti-corporate. You could just make fun of politicians and businessmen, and that was good enough. That qualified. That's one of the things that's changed. Now, now, in order to be challenging the status quo, you have to wear matching overalls at Trader Joe's with your, your weird trans twin. That's what I saw today. It was a heavy dose. You know, it was a heavy dose between Evergreen and, and Trader Joe's. Billy Joe's. Went to Billy Joe's. I went to Billy Joe's and you wouldn't believe these people were in matching overalls. That's it's a weird thing though. Like I mean, that always gets me about anybody anybody who dresses like a twin. I mean, I saw these photos. I'm I'm just talking a lot about the LGBTs here, but some years back a kid I grew up with, it turns out he had a gay uncle. And I saw photos of their wedding cuz the kid I knew was at it. He was at their wedding his uncle and the bride or the the groom and the groom the two grooms were dressed like twins just a different color and they looked like twins 
They were both bald, both totally the same exact weight, the same exact build. They even resembled each other. Their faces even had a vague similarity. Exact same shape heads, exact same bodies, totally bald, shaved down to the the skin. And they were wearing the same outfit, I think just a different shade or a different color. And I was like, wow, that's a weird thing. Like, Like wanting to be the mirror image of each other. Because, you, you know, you can see couple, like like straight couples where they, they wear like matching sweatshirts. I mean, people used to make fun of that at the county fair and places where you'd see some old couple wearing matching sweatshirts. It's an old couple sort of thing, the idea that they wear matching outfits on vacation. But looking at these two gay men, they were, it was like, wow, they, they really are. They're like Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And uh, I've seen that a lot of different times, actually. I've seen this sort of twin syndrome. And these people I saw at Trader Joe's, I don't know if they were a couple. I don't know if they were friends. I don't know if they were related. Were related, But they obviously went out that day and wanted to look like twins. Let's wear these artsy Capri overalls. Let's dress like newsboys. Let's dress like newsies. And that's part of their identity. Uh, what it felt like, you know, what it reminds me of is like in an RPG, like if you played a a role-playing game where you go to a new village in a new area and the villagers look completely different than everywhere else. Like you go there and you're like, oh, this is a different type of people. This is a different type of people. This is a different tribe. Oh, this part of the world map, the people look different. That's kind of what it's like. It's like going to a village and you're like, oh yeah, the, the, everybody who lives in this village looks this way. In the role-playing game, you go around and talk to the villagers, and you're like, the villagers are very distinctive here. But there were even more people there, beyond just the, the obvious people. There's people now where I see them, I see them all over here. Like there was a, a very heavy middle-aged woman who had that haircut. The sides were shaved, the top kind of like went up and then swooped down. It's that haircut where I immediately could tell everything she believes. I could immediately tell what her views are on everything. And that's why it is tribal. That's why when you see this out and about, it's not something that bothers me. I comment on it now and again, especially as I see more and more of it, as it becomes a part, I mean, it has been here for me, but as it becomes more and more of a daily reality, I'm just simply aware of it. Because it's beyond a fashion trend. You know, I've seen plenty of trends, fashion trends come and go. This brings with it a whole way of thinking. You know, yeah, when I was growing up, you'd occasionally see somebody and and you would think like, oh, I can tell what that person thinks based on the way they're dressed. But it wasn't that common. But we live in a time now where if you see somebody who has that look, even if it's just a haircut, you go, oh, I, I know immediately what that person thinks about just about any issue. And I probably won't be proven wrong. If I were to bet on it, I would probably win. And so you see that out and about, and I think the reason I notice it isn't just, oh, that's what people are doing fashion-wise. Yeah, that stuff comes and goes. Fashion trends come and go. But this is something that brings with it an entire way of thinking. It's a person who lives in a suspended reality, one that's 
suspended in a different direction from your own suspended reality. Because I'm not saying I'm living in the absolute true reality either. But they're looking in a different direction. Like their illusion is in a different direction than yours. And so when I see them, I'm just always like, oh, wow. It's like I want to be aware of where they are. I'm like, that, those people are from a different tribe than me. It's not like I look around and I see people and I'm like, oh, they're part of my tribe. I'm just very well aware of the people who are definitely not a part of my tribe. And I want to avoid them, really. Not that, not that I'm forced to interact with them, but it's like I want to avoid them because I just see that as a potential problem. Like, oh, I'm glad I know where they are. And that's why I actually like this. You know, you'll hear right-wing pundits and people complain about, oh, they got blue hair. Oh, all these blue hairs are around. Oh, my God. Can you believe they look this way? They look like freaks. Like, I want these people to look the way they look. I want to know who these people are. Not so I can judge them. Not so I can cause any problem with them. The whole store could be made up of them, and I'd just say, okay, things are really changing. This thing's really moving along even faster. But I am glad that I can identify people. Not just the people who are playing around with gender and all that, just like that middle-aged lady. Her choice to get that haircut, that particular haircut, told me, it, it gave me her entire political footprint. And probably not just politics, but a whole, a whole world of other things too. And so it's like, I'm glad you have that haircut because I know. It tells me what I need to know about you. Not so I can judge you, just so I can know it. Because we need to know what's going on in our surroundings. So dye, these people, every time they dye their hair a weird color or make a particular fashion choice that places them in that tribe, you go, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. I mean, it could be a pretty girl. Like I see, I see, I see pretty girls around. Sometimes you can tell from just a fashion choice these days where they align politically. Not because I, I actually care about that, but it's good to know. It's good to know how they think. It's good to know what to expect. Like, not like I'm going to go up to them and talk to them, but it's just good to know. You see it with men as well. People have gotten really good at making fashion choices that correlate with their political and social views, with their ideology. We're in a period where there's more and more of them. And so I think that's, that's it's actually a good thing. If things are going to be this polarized... If there is going to be this much animosity, it would be worse if it was harder to recognize. And I mean, I think progressives see phantoms everywhere in part because you can't immediately recognize what their opposition looks like. Somebody who's just dressed in something resembling the normal fashion of the day, you really can't tell what they're all about. You don't know, especially in an area like this. You know, and I think, as for me personally, I would never want somebody to look at me and associate me with a certain tribe. Like, I saw a guy at the bus stop a few years ago, like 40-something, beard, a little bit hefty. And he had a shirt that just said, take the red pill. And I was like, what an interesting choice that is. 
Like he's just placing himself in a tribal category. He's not even somebody admirable in any way. You know, he's not buff. He's not, you know, he looks like a guy who goes and sits in front of Netflix just like anybody else. But he's got this shirt that says, take the red pill. I assume that's just the red pill stuff you always hear about. Taking the red pill, being like waking up to the reality. You know, it's it's more of a right-wing idea, the way it's used. So I assume that's what he was signaling. He's like, I'm a part of that way of thinking. I'm a part of that that way. That's my ideology. You could probably assume a lot about that guy from that shirt alone. I mean, I know you could. I'm doing it right now. I assume I know what that guy thinks about all all sorts of issues. I'm sure that guy, I'm sure all of his values are the inverse of whatever the current progressive values are. Maybe. Probably a lot of them. But that one in particular, that's more direct. Like wearing a shirt with an obvious ideological slogan on it. That's a little bit different from just your fashion. Like if this guy didn't have red pill written on his shirt, I wouldn't actually know. He could just as well be one of these like liberal Marvel freaks. Or he could be some or he could be an incel who hates women. You know, I have no idea what that guy's all about if he doesn't have that slogan. With progressives, what's interesting is it's it's becoming much easier to simply recognize them from their fashion choices. Language is also becoming uh, an easier way of recognizing like people's tone of voice. You can almost tell who's a liberal and who's not based on the way their voice sounds. And... Uh, the phrasing in particular, the language they use, the words they use, how they say things. I mean, someone can communicate in a few words these days where their politics are, the way they approach different subjects and topics. You can tell a lot. You know, if, you, if you're at all interested in human psychology, I mean, this is a goldmine. You know, it's all laid out very clear to us. We can see it in person. We can see it online. We can observe it from afar. It's a psychological goldmine. And you see the way that certain behaviors become part of a much larger political and social identity. And those behaviors influence that identity, but that identity in particular influences the behavior. And you can go to the grocery store and you can immediately say, okay, a certain number of people here are from that other tribe. It's not that I I see anybody else and I think that's my tribe. It's very unlikely that I ever think that. But as I'm going around the store, I'm at least like, okay, there's representatives from that other tribe here. And they are a different tribe. They have completely different values. They have a completely different way of viewing the world. They have... But, you know, it's nice that we are we all view grocery stores the same way. It's nice that we're all going to Trader Joe's looking at the same things. We're all willing to wait in line. You know, we have a common purpose here. There's no problems. Trader Joe's is plentiful. We're not having to fight over anything in there. It'd be eye-opening if it was a free-for-all. Like if, if I went to Trader Joe's today and it was a free-for-all, 
There were five things left. It'd be interesting to see what would happen. But uh, in this case, it was plentiful, so there's nothing to fight over. But I was still aware of these people. And that's all it is. It's, a, it's an awareness. I'm like, oh, there is, there's somebody who is signaling their affiliation. It's like somebody sewing the flag of their country onto their backpack when they go traveling elsewhere in the world. Like I remember hearing, you know, I remember hearing some advice to American travelers where it's like, oh, if you ever go backpacking in Europe, if you ever go backpacking in Europe, you know, sew a Canadian flag onto your backpack so they think you're Canadian because they hate Americans. They hate Americans. They, they, uh, if they think you're Canadian, they'll, they'll be nicer to you. I used to hear that. I don't know how true it was. It's kind of like that, though, where it's almost like people have their flags sewn into their clothes. And sometimes they do. I mean, you see a lot of rainbow stuff. I mean, you see, but, and I mean, too, it's like if you see somebody who is earnestly wearing the American flag these days, you can take a lot from that. You know, you can take a lot. Like if a guy has an, an American flag on his hat or his shirt or his truck, you can probably figure out his politics pretty easily. Maybe not every single thing, but you could you could probably predict how he votes at this point. There's just, there, there's some things you wear. There's some ways you decorate yourself. But I guess in that case, once again, though, that's that's using particular symbols, I mean, we shouldn't live in a country where wearing the flag of our own nation is seen as, you know, politically slanted. But the truth is, that's how it is. But with, uh, you know, with this other thing I'm talking about, it, it doesn't even matter if there are symbols. You know, it doesn't even matter if, if this other tribe is wearing symbols. You can just tell from their haircut. You can tell from their fashion choices. It's that easy. Whereas like the other guy has to wear a shirt with an American flag or has to have a shirt that says, take the red pill for you to figure him out. If he didn't have those symbols, if he didn't have those words, you would have no idea what he thinks. There's no haircut a normal guy can have that automatically places him in a certain category. It's less obvious, whereas on the left, there certainly is. The signals are much stronger. They're much more pronounced. You can read into people a lot easier. But, you know, what got me going on that is just living in a in suspended reality. We're, we're willing to do that for fiction. But when we become part of these larger fictions, and we can see that politics is, is that, and it's become even more of that, People relate to politics the same way they do an emotional story. Like when they see somebody say or do something that they don't like, or they're told they shouldn't like, they react the same way they would to the bad guy in a movie. Oh my God, I can't believe he did. Why is he doing that? You know, they react the same way. Because they're living in a movie. You know, they were introduced to all these ideas just like I was, all of these exposés about how things are made, how movies are made, how the magic tricks are done. They showed us into the mechanics of all that stuff. 
but it didn't completely break the spell. I think it had some sort of effect on the way we take in entertainment. But it didn't seem to break the spell. Like, people still get sucked into stories and movies. Now they're doing it online. They, they vicariously observe other people and get sucked into those stories. They get sucked into those stories. They get sucked into those stories. They get sucked into those. And they relate to them the same way they do fiction. They relate to politics the same way they do fiction. The difference is they don't forget about it after two hours. With a movie, there's a decent chance, unless you're obsessed, unless there was some really good world building, unless a movie has good world building, you're probably not going to think about it after it's over. You know, unless it's Star Wars or Harry Potter or something, some Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, unless it's something immersive, unless it's an entire world to think about. Like, oh, I wonder, oh, what about that? There was those characters that showed in one episode. I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what their traditions are. You know, with those sorts of stories, people wonder about every little thing. They wonder about every background character, every part of the globe. But with most most movies and shows and things, like when people are done watching it, they kind of forget about it an hour later. But the difference is with the way people are experiencing the world now, it just never ends. They're as stressed out, they're as emotional, they're as reactive as they would be a movie that they're in, they're into. But it, it never really ends. They have it in front of them at all times. And it's stressing them out just like that. Even things that don't affect them and won't affect them. It's empathy gone haywire. Where anything that could ever affect anyone stresses you out just as if it's happening to you or, or as if it's going to happen to you or it's happening to someone you personally know. And it's good that we feel that way to a certain extent. It's good that we have this broad empathy we can apply at times. But now it's just being attacked 24-7. We're experiencing the stress of a movie, the stress of a drama. We're feeling the anxiety of we're feeling anxiety in the same way we do when we watch a fictional movie or show, but it's now distributed among, amongst everything we pay attention to. And we can't stop it. And it seems like everything that we see with our own eyes feels like a pivotal scene in the movie. And then you go out in the world and you see bits and pieces of it. And, you know, I mean, I mean, just talking about my day in the span of an hour, it it was just kind of wild going to campus and then going to Trader Joe's and seeing that much of this for an area that already has a lot of it, seeing how much it's increased. And this area is a bubble. This, this is a place where there's going to be more of that than there is other places, but it's still a lot where it's like. Oh, you know, all of this stuff that you you see online if you spend too much time looking at current events and things, there's really no escape from it. And if you're sucked into it emotionally, you will respond emotionally. I'm pretty detached. Simply talking about it makes you sound like you're invested. But the reality is I'm pretty detached. Like, I don't feel threatened by this. Like, I, I feel pretty secure in who I am and what I'm all about. But I'm observant of it.
So there's this sort of detached observation. And I, I, I see an increase in a certain type of person, a certain... I see, I see more and more members of a certain tribe. And I'm just like, well, that's, they're increasing. Oh, there's more. This thing's not ending. You'd think it would. You'd think somebody would be like, yeah, I don't need to do that same thing that everybody else I know is doing. But I don't know if they know what else to do. Because I think they are completely hijacked. I think they are completely tribalized. You know, people have been making the tribal comparison forever. That, oh, the different political parties in this country are tribal. There's all this tribalism. Well, we're seeing the tribalism become very real and physical. Where looking a certain way allows people to immediately associate you with a certain tribe. It's almost, you know, playing the same role race does. Where you see someone's skin color and their facial features, you don't necessarily think anything about it. You're just aware of the fact that, oh, that's a black person. That person's Southeast Asian. That person looks Italian. You don't necessarily do anything with that information. You're just aware of it. You're like, that person's part of a certain tribe. So that's what we're able to do now with entire ways of thinking. These aren't races. These aren't ethnicities. But they're kind of like that now. When I see a bunch of transgender people in one day, and they all kind of have the same fashion sense... They all kind of have a similar look about them, the same haircuts. I'm like, okay, yeah, this might as well be an ethnicity today. These are the ethnicities that America's creating. They've been abstracted, but they're still kind of becoming that same thing. It's a type of person, and it's manifesting physically as well as mentally. And you, you, start, you can start stereotyping people just like you would in ethnicity as well. And, you know, and the harmless side of stereotyping is just saying like, oh, those people do this thing different. And because they do that different, we associate that with that type of person. And that's what it's becoming for these people. You know, being able to predict somebody's thoughts or their behavior is essentially stereotyping. you shouldn't do it as a rule. You shouldn't go around stereotyping people or using stereotypes against somebody. But you often can accurately predict certain qualities. And in this case, when you see these people, you're like, okay, I can accurately predict what this person is going to say or do about XYZ, possibly the whole alphabet. That's a stereotype, but it's based on observation. It's based on recognizable patterns in those people. And that's what we do. That's what survival is, recognizing patterns. It's a part of survival at the very least. Oh, that when that happens, this happens. When this comes about, that comes about. And it's hard not to do that with people. Because we live in a time where like our biggest, what we, what we consider the biggest threat is other people. 
And there, there's people who would have gone to the school in Trader Joe's today and they would have felt threatened by the people they saw. I, didn't, I don't feel threatened by them. I'm just aware of them. And I'm aware of the patterns that they represent. It's just being familiar with your environment. Because at this point, I think we just have to let this tribal process play out. Nobody's going to convince anybody to leave their tribe or that their tribe is bad or has fault at all. So we just have to let this tribal process play out. I'm interested in seeing how far it goes. I'm interested in seeing how distinct it gets, how distinct these tribes become. Because so far we see that one tribe has way more identifiers than the other. One tribe is way more easily stereotyped than the others. It's not even evident to me that there is another tribe. They certainly see one. But I'm having a harder time making a distinction between uh, you know, the opposition to this, between different parts of the opposition. <sighs> and people are watching this creep up. People are watching this play out. I mean, it's observable everywhere. It seems to come up constantly. I talk to people in different parts of the country. It's not uncommon at all for this stuff to come up, even among people who are apolitical or don't see things the way I see. It's almost inevitable in some way that somebody will make some kind of observation, some kind of joke. I listen to a broad array of podcasts. You know, some of them you expect to hear about this culture war stuff, as they call it. Some of them you don't necessarily, but it still comes up. They broach the topic. Like I think about Rick Glassman, who's probably my favorite podcast, Pound for Pound. Pound for Pound. Yeah, but I'd say in the last two and a half years since I discovered it, Rick Glassman's show has been my favorite. I think he's fairly liberal. I think, he, I think he's very liberal. He's a Jewish guy from the Midwest. He's done bit roles and sitcoms, but he's a very funny guy. I just really enjoy his show. And he still will event like you can tell he's very careful about it. You can tell he doesn't buy into all this the madness of it all. But you can tell he's very careful about it. He doesn't want to dig into the topic, but he'll inevitably bring it up. And I notice a lot of people bring it up by being like, "Oh, can we even say that anymore?" Oh, I don't even know if I can say that anymore. People will kind of make light of how quickly things have changed or what you can and can't say, what's considered offensive. That's a pretty neutral way of dealing with it, I've noticed. People who have careers in Hollywood and don't want to upset the apple cart, they'll say things like that. Oh, can I even say that anymore? I don't even know what I can say or not say now. They'll say things to that effect. They don't usually go all the way in, though. They kind of dip their toes in it. What I noticed, though, is they can't avoid talking about it, just like I can't. Like I didn't, I, I really didn't want to talk about this stuff again. But it seems to be unavoidable because it's, it's constantly, you're constantly being made aware of it and you're constant, constantly being asked to suspend reality. And you, you are living in a suspended reality. You are reacting to things that aren't real. You are seeing things in a very distorted way. But what's being asked of you is for you to see the same distortions that other people are seeing. 
And it's very difficult to do that. Even if you had none of your own distortions to deal with, it's very difficult to see the world through somebody else's distortion. It's almost as if they're on a different drug than you. And I think that's a decent way of looking at it. You go into the grocery store and you're like, okay, that person, these two people, those people, they're on a different drug than I am. I should be aware of that. We can all coexist here. We can all get our Trader Joe's frozen food that we're excited about. But we're on a different drug. And accepting that is, I mean, that should just be the beginning. We've taken a different drug. We're seeing something different. We're experiencing something different. And you're not going to be able to convince me to see, you know, what you see. That's for sure. But I'm not going to try to force you to see what I see either. We'll just see how this goes. That's about all you can do. Let's just see how this goes. Let's keep ourselves in check and just see how this goes. Beyond the normal struggles of surviving, beyond just the world issues that truly do impact everybody, I feel pretty content with that scenario. Let's just see what happens. You keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. These people will keep doing what they're doing. And we'll just see what happens. I don't think that's a bad approach at all. But as, as someone who has no interest in fashion, I'm still very aware of it. And the reason I got, I got into this tonight is just because I'm thinking about the role that fashion has played. Where I always thought about fashion as, oh, it's looking good. Yeah, you do signal certain things about yourself, like rebellious teenagers dress in a certain way to communicate something. When a teenager wears a t-shirt and a tie and a studded belt, in the same outfit, they're saying, like, I think, I think corporate America is a joke. And me and my guitar are, are just going to do our own thing over here. You know, that's kind of what you're, you're, you're communicating something more than the fashion statement. You're saying, like, I'm rebelling against the things that you think are real. Oh, you think a tie is real? Well, I'm going to wear a tie with my youth-sized T-shirt. I'm going to hold my baggy jeans up with a studded belt while I wear this loose tie around my neck. There's more going on there than just wearing that stuff. You're making a statement. And so it's not new to make statements through clothing. But I always tended to think of fashion as, okay, fashion's a way to look cool or good. Or it signals that you don't give a fuck one way or the other. Some people are just, oh, that person clearly doesn't give a fuck. They're clearly not dressing to impress. And not just impress as in impressive, but also to impress an idea onto other people. Because people dress to impress in that way too. They dress to communicate. But that's become more common, where dressing a certain way communicates something about you. And more and more, it seems to communicate everything about you. Like if I see a a teenage girl with short hair, a necktie, and overalls, I can probably infer a lot about her from that. 
I can tell what tribe she belongs to. And I find that sociologically interesting. That making these statements means as much as it does today. Because when you think about the teenage punk in the 90s who's you know still drinking the backwash of 80s and 70s punk, they're just living in the suburbs. And they're like, oh, I guess I'll get into punk. Oh, I guess I'll get into punk. I don't, I don't really know what to do with myself. I, I, I guess I'll get into punk. I guess I'll get into punk. Yeah, that person, while they were communicating something with their fashion, it didn't really correspond to an entire set of values and worldviews. Like maybe they believed in anarchy. Maybe they were anti-war. Maybe they didn't like evangelical Christian politics. But it was all, it was just a smear. It was just a smear of stuff. And if you were to actually talk to that type of kid, and I knew many of them, maybe I was even similar to that at a certain point. It didn't correspond to a whole set of values. Like their outlook wasn't entirely hardened. They dressed a certain way that was a little bit rebellious. And it, it corresponded to this smear of just like a general outlook. But there were no specifics. It wasn't that tribal. And it was seen as just sort of a phase. There were plenty of kids I knew who were kind of teenage punks who just turned into normal dudes really quickly after high school or after college. Some of them because they had kids. Some of them just because why sustain that? Because it didn't really have a deeper meaning to them. It was just, I'm a rebel. I look this way. But what we're seeing now, it does correspond to an entire checklist of values. It goes so deep. Like, what that person considers the very essence of their life is represented in this tribal affiliation that now has a very distinct way of looking. And it's clear, like, and, and looking that way is clearly not just about fashion. Like when you think about a teenage girl or a, a girl in college who does that, who goes for that look today, who cuts her hair short, dyes it, wears maroon capri overalls, wears a tie, dresses like a newsboy. You know, she's, she's uh, not just going through a phase. Like even if she outgrows that, it's not just a phase. It's something that's impacted her identity on a far deeper level. And it's clearly not about being unique. Because the thing about the teenager who rebelled 20 or 30 years ago is a big motivation was like, I want to do something unique. I want to make myself distinctive. Each junior high only had one or two kids who would dye their hair and spike it. It was something kids were doing all across the country, and every school had one. But there were only a couple punks for every school, it felt like. There were only a couple punks. There were only a couple punks for every school. It's true, though. There were only so many kids, maybe a small circle of friends at the most. Maybe it's different if you went to some huge high school, but where I lived in the suburbs, each school only had one or two kids like that. So a big motivation in, in signaling that, in signaling that you're a rebel through what you wear, 
was to say, hey, I'm different than everybody. I'm the only one doing this. Even though there's one of me in every school, I'm the only one doing it here. But what we're seeing with this progressive fashion is all their friends are doing it too. Everyone around them, their entire group is doing it. It's definitely not about looking unique. Because I knew some girls years ago who looked that way. Dyed hair, they get weird haircuts, they dress that way. I dated a girl like that. But at that time, they were really the only people you knew doing that. And now that it's this whole, you see middle-aged ladies, like thinking about the lady I saw with her haircut. Thinking about the lady I saw with her haircut. But thinking about her, where she got this haircut that you only would have seen on radicals eight years ago. But she's a middle-aged lady now, and she has that hair. It's definitely not about setting yourself apart. It's, it's not about being unique. Because chances are, you're in a community of people where half of them or more look that way. So what is it? Well, it seems to be about affiliating yourself. It's not the kid who dyes his hair to set himself apart. It's dyeing your hair, wearing certain clothes, coming across a certain way to signal affiliation rather than distinction. You're with this. You're with this larger entity. That's why it's tribal. And I'll be curious to see what happens with the fashion because it's become so central to this. The fashion has made people instantly identifiable. And as this continues, because, you know, it shows no signs of letting off anytime soon. As this continues, I'm, I'm curious to see what will become of the fashion. Because you'd think some of the more fashion forward people who think this way would have changed by now. But they really haven't. But part of that is because so many of these decisions they're making are permanent. You know, they're very focused on tattoos and body mod. Not even just the people getting surgeries to change their gender. But just the general youth fashion associated with far-left progressivism. There's a focus on permanent alteration to your body. Doing things to your body that you can't really undo. Getting tattoos all over. Random tattoos. Piercings. And then you do get into the plastic surgery side of it. Changing your gender and all that. You can't effectively undo that. But there is a, a greater focus on permanence. Having things done to your body. And that's tribal too. I mean, you think about tribal tattoos. Gangs. Both tribes and gangs like people to do something permanent to their body that signifies they are part of that thing. And so you see progressivism that way as well, where there's an emphasis on permanence. I'm going to want this forever. But it's not like... It's not as if they're doing it for their own personal reasons. They're not doing it in the same way people would have gotten a tattoo in years past, where it was like, oh, I'm getting this tattoo because I want it forever. This tattoo represents me. It's now representing something far beyond themselves. 
And if you do make permanent decisions to yourself, this gender thing being the ultimate example, there's really no going back. And if you try, it's with a great deal of shame, and you're attached to that thing forever. Like, there's a local guy here who does a show. He's, he's kind of a disaffected liberal guy, but I'll check out his show sometimes. He All he talks about is the gender stuff, and he's very objective. He's obviously against it and skeptical, but he, he does make an effort to be objective and kind in his analysis of it. But he'll have these detransitioners on, and I usually don't watch those because I know what the story is going to be. They got on Tumblr or one of these websites when they were at a... Uh, a vulnerable age they were kind of coached through that way of thinking they got convinced that their depression and anxiety was a byproduct of being in the wrong body these other activist types introduced them to resources and literature basically propaganda they made some life-altering changes at a time when most kids don't even know who they are And then when they became adults, they realized they had made a mistake. There's many people like this. And so occasionally I'll check it out. Most of the time I don't need to know. It's sad. It makes me sad. And I'm just not going to learn anything anything new. You know, I think it's good that they talk to these people. But it makes me sad too because it's like they now have to live with this forever. This isn't just a stupid haircut you got when you were 13. You took hormones. You had surgeries done. You made life-altering changes. And a part of you is always going to be reeling from that. And so you can understand why some people might just never walk back. There's, you can't. Because you're going to orbit that no matter what. If you have some sort of sexual reassignment surgery and regret it, like you're still going to orbit that gender dilemma the rest of your life. Like Even if you become an adult and you're like, okay... I found out that was just a phase. Oh, uh uh-oh. I had this removed. I had this done. I was taking this medication that changed my body chemistry. Well, I'm going to have to orbit around that forever. This wasn't just something I... This isn't just some regret from my youth. Oh, I made one bad decision, but I don't see it every day. I don't experience it every day. So this is something that people are committing to. And it's like a tribe or a gang in the sense that you make these permanent decisions, but you also adorn yourself a certain way to make sure there's no mistaking where you belong. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this comes after we've lost many of our previous tribal identities. You know, now that we're you know, generations removed, you know, you think about white Americans being generations removed from our immigrant. I mean, my, my great grandparents were immigrants. And you think about how different that experience is. Like my grandpa grew up in a home with a mother born in Norway and a father born in Sweden. That's a much different experience than me being four generations in just knowing myself as an American. Like, I know my heritage, and I think about it and talk about it. My family talked about heritage, you know, to some degree. But not to the degree that my grandpa would have felt it and experienced it, where everybody's parents were immigrants. You still knew a lot of immigrants. 
So that identity has been largely lost. And being white means nothing. You know, it's used mainly pejoratively. But even then, it's not like there's some unifying white culture. You know, when you you live in the part of the country I live in, most of who you see are white people. But you don't see them and think like, oh, I have something in common with these people. It's just they're generic. And so these kids have grown up with even more of that than I did. They don't see anything worth identifying with or joining. I mean, there's no clubs. You know, it's amazing how many men were part of clubs, how many people were part of clubs in generations past, even just a generation or two ago. People identified much more with other groups of people in their community. And so this digital generation, these people who have grown up in the digital age, they didn't just encounter as teenagers like I did. They grew up in that digital age where they don't really have a tribe. Even being a teenager isn't much of a tribe anymore. And you think about the teenage revolution of the 50s where being a teenager almost became its own tribal identification. Well, you don't even feel that much. I mean, you don't even feel that very much these days. You don't really identify with or as anything. So is it any surprise that somebody would find a new tribal identification and go wholeheartedly into it? Why that would be refreshing? So when these people dye their hair and wear olive green overalls with a tie around their neck, it's not that they're trying to make themselves distinct. It's that they now live in a psychic village with these other people And this village looks that way. This is the garb of our people. These are the adornments of our people. And we have to accept that to move forward. We have to accept that that's how things are. People are living in these different psychic tribes. And some of them have made themselves very identifiable. But if things are going to be as tense as they are, if these tribes are going to have such polarizing views... If everybody's, if everybody's going to be so internally aggressive about everything, if they're going to be reacting emotionally to everything, if, if it's going to be this tense, well, it's better that we can see that. It's better that you can tell where someone belongs. It makes things a little bit easier. But in the meantime, it is very weird. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.